Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodem with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? In a regular year, the second Grand Slam tennis tournament, the French Open, would be underway right now. The novel coronavirus postponed the Paris event until September 20th. The war on the virus canceled Wimbledon, which previously had only been interrupted by two world wars. The U.S. Tennis Association says the U.S. Open is still set for August 24th in New York, but every scenario is on the table, including November at Indian Wells, which canceled its March event before even the NBA suspended its season. As ESPN's Grand Slam tennis host, Chris McKendry has covered all four majors since 2010, transitioning from SportsCenter anchor to the tennis beat full-time in 2016. McKendry began her career at the Worldwide Leader in Sports in the summer of 1996 after serving as a sideline and feature reporter during that season's NBA playoffs on TNT and TBS. A year later, she followed Mike Tirico as the second anchor on ESPN News before returning to SportsCenter as host of Weekend Morning and Weekday 6 p.m. editions. In a career of firsts, she launched the live Midday SportsCenter during the 2008 Beijing Olympics, as well as the Winter X Games in 1997, and she was the first woman to work as a TV sports anchor in Washington, D.C. She served as a sideline reporter for the 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup, wrote an ESPN.com page two column, and hosted the Little League World Series, the X Games, and the National Spelling Bee, which again, in a regular year, would have been held this Thursday. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris McKendry, that's all one word, C-H-R-I-S-M-C-K-E-N-D-R-Y. Chris McKendry, how are you and your family doing? Hi, Stu. Um, We're fine. Luckily, we're fine. Um, Hardest thing we're going through is separation. You know, my mom is not in state in Connecticut where I live, so we haven't been able to see each other. But um, kids are homeschooling and my husband's working from home, but we are safe and sound. Thank you. That's great to hear. And the year started kind of on a tenuous note with bushfires that threatened the Australian Open. And ultimately, Novak Djokovic extended his record with an eighth title in the tournament and became the first man in the Open era to win a Grand Slam in three different decades. American Sophia Kennan won her first major and was the winner of the final WTA Tour event in the first week of March in Lyon, France, before the pandemic suspended play. And personally for you, the year began with you and seven other ESPN team members signing new contracts. Just to run it down in alphabetical order, Darren Cahill, Chris Everett, Mary Jo Fernandez, Brad Gilbert, John and Patrick McEnroe, and Pam Shriver. What does it mean to have eight hosts and analysts re-sign at the same time? And and what's the key to your chemistry? Because it's clear that you're really a family when you're at these tournaments. I'm glad that comes through. We really are. I started doing tennis, as you mentioned in the intro, in 2010, and it just hit me instantly. I mean, that crew has been together so long, honestly, through their careers. So you're talking about professionals who have known each other since teenage years. Um, and when I joined the gang in 2010, uh, you know, I'm the the layman, so to speak. I came on as the sportscaster, and the other sportscaster who was there was Chris Fowler. Um, Mike Tarico was as well. So the three of us also went back decades and it was just instantaneous. When I started in 2010, after my first trip to Australia, 
I came home and that was my reaction. I just, I just found my next spot. That's my next gig. I want to somehow make tennis, um, a, a full-time, you know, opportunity for me, cover the beat, whatever it might be. But I really just loved that crew so much. We have so much fun together and it's, it's so important because unlike other sports, okay, you do a game a week, you pop in, you see each other for a production meeting, you get up the next day or a race or whatever it might be. And you do your game and you go home. We're on the road with each other. You know, at one point it was four times a year. Now, since we don't do the French, it's three, but plus you throw in Indian Wells and Miami and such. Uh, we go away with each other for two and a half weeks at a time. You know, that's two and a half weeks of every day in the car together, two and a half weeks of, you know, having hotel rooms right next to each other. Several of us live with each other during Wimbledon because we rent homes. So Chrissy Everett and I have been, you know, housemates for four years at Wimbledon. So you really have to get along with each other. Um, you do become a family. It naturally breeds into chemistry because there's, you know, like family, there's so many inside jokes. There's just such a history there. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess I, I don't know how to credit the chemistry, except I do know our um, executive producer, Jamie Reynolds, is really just terrific about uh, finding a collection of people and putting it together, and he knows how to make it work. The fact you live together at Wimbledon, <laughs> yeah. not, not doing that this year, I imagine, you know, for the whole tennis world is, is, a, is a big shock to the system. But to your team, you know, what does that mean? It, it's sad. You know, it's sad. It's, we, of course, have great perspective. We know how much people are suffering. I mean, here in the U.S., we're about to go over 100,000 deaths. So we have great perspective on what it means not to simply be covering a tennis event. But that being said, it is sad. It's tradition, as you mentioned, it. it's only been canceled before for world wars. So that tells you how serious um, the times are right now. Uh, you know, we'll miss it and it'll become one of those water cooler talks. Um, you know, what would have happened this year with Wimbledon? Djokovic looked incredible in Australia. And as we were leaving Australia, it's one thing Darren Cahill said. He said, wow, I could see him doing the calendar slam this year. And, you know, it's something Rafa and Roger, they've never done it. Will we see Djokovic do it now a year from now? We don't know. You know, it's that big, could Serena have taken this Wimbledon? Could Roger, you know, was, was it going to be his last great push? So there's a lot of history and, and just kind of the rhythm of our lives uh, is broken, right? Isn't that how we all feel? And, and that's what's really going to hit me when we don't pack up and travel to Wimbledon is, yeah. wow, this is a true you know, disruption. You mentioned the big three and Serena, which you addressed in a Get Up essay, which was, to me, Dick Enberg-esque, which, you know, you, he's wow. one of your former colleagues. And My goodness, dude, thank I think you. We, we grew up watching Breakfast at Wimbledon with him and, and Bud Collins. Mm -hmm. um, and in that essay, you said, simply put, the pandemic could end the golden era in tennis. And yeah. uh, it's on your, your Twitter feed, and I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, that may be true, and I, I definitely want to talk about that, but I want to look back 
since you started your run now with the Aussie Open in 2010, Serena has won 12 of her 23 Grand Slams, one behind Margaret Court's record 24. Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have won 34 of the 41 Grand Slams since that 2010 Aussie Open, including the last 13 in a row. Nadal's a win away from tying Federer's 20 Grand Slams, uh, the record. Djokovic recently said he'll break that record and set the mark for most weeks at number one. And all of this reminded me of another Philadelphia sportscaster. We'll get into your background in a little bit. Jack Whitaker telling Jack Nicholas it has been an honor covering golf in your time. And The Last Dance just celebrated another GOAT, Michael Jordan's career. What have you taken away from your time covering Serena and the big three? Um, brilliance, you know, pure brilliance. Um, to watch Federer play and the doll and Djokovic and and Serena, you know, it's it's just been incredible. I mean, sometimes we say the numbers like you just said, 34 or 41 or I mean, and you, you just wrap your head around that. You know, if you were born right as Roger Federer was winning his first Grand Slam, you're a year away from going to college. You know, I mean, I. I have two sons and they were six and four years old and they dressed up as Roger and Rafa for <laughs> Halloween. Both of them played a lot at tennis when they were little and they loved Roger and Rafa. And I'm sure the influence of, you know, being around them and getting to see them play certainly had an effect on them. And my, my six-year-old, you know, they went up to a neighbor's door and, and she said, oh, what are you? And he said, we're the greatest rivalry in the world. Right? <laughs> and I mean, four and six, and he's a junior in high school, and they're still the greatest rivalry in the world right now. Um, so it's, it's just been incredible to watch the brilliance. And then also, you know, what it's like to watch any athlete, you know, we got a glimpse of it with Michael Jordan, to be behind the scenes and see someone who truly transcends their sport. Um, you know, everywhere Roger Federer goes, he's like Michael Jordan when Michael Jordan stopped at every NBA city. You know, in the last dance, you saw the international phenomenon he was when they got to Barcelona. That's Roger's life. That's Rafa's life. You know, every city they go in, they are on a billboard somewhere. So it's it's just been incredible to watch. And they're really classy athletes. Um, you know, they're not just winners, they're great champions of the sport. I commented this year in Australia, you saw that when, you know, Roger was injured and had no shot at beating Djokovic in the semifinals, none whatsoever. Um, but still went out there and gave it a match when a lot of athletes might have said, I don't want to risk further injury. I have no shot at winning, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying no. Roger looked after the sport, looked after the tournament, gave the fans a big match, and that's what champions do. We uh, mentioned Serena as well, and not just on court, but off court, mm -hmm. how she's become the brand, the sportswoman of the year, person of the year with Sports Illustrated. Um, incredible. Just, yeah, yeah, I guess if you could maybe look back at, at what she's done and, and what she can continue to do with Coco Golf nipping at the heels of the Williams sisters. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Serena's done everything, right? She's the greatest player out there. Um, you know, yes, she's one behind Margaret Court for, you know, most all time as opposed to most in the open era. But as an athlete, she's positively, you know, beyond what we've ever seen in the sport before. And then everything she handles off the court. She's a phenomenal businesswoman. She absolutely runs her team. Um, you know, she's, she's just a great, I think she's a great mentor to the younger players. I don't think, I think, 
you know, you always see the fierce competitor when she is when she's on the court, um, but she's wonderful Fed Cup teammate. She looks after the younger players. She's inspired. I mean, I believe it. You know, if, um, you have to see it sometimes to believe it. And for a lot of these younger players, she was the first person they saw who was like them. And, um, and they saw it, they believed it, and now they're becoming it. Um, plus everything she handles behind the scenes. You know, I think sometimes players don't realize that until they become number one or they win their first grand slam. And then the next tournament, you, all the press you have to do and all of the accommodations you have to make. Um, and they, you know, they'll admit like, wow, that was really overwhelming. I didn't realize what went into being the defending champion or what might be. And it, like Roger and Rafa and Novak, I mean, that's just the life she lives. You know, she shows up at a tournament and it's so much more than just playing tennis working with Chris Everett and, and John McEnroe uh, mm -hmm. and having called, as you said, on a Racket Magazine podcast a couple of years ago, a couple of games of Karlovich Struff with Federer at Wimbledon in 2018. Right. Would you see any of those big three or Serena getting into broadcasting and what would that bring to a broadcast? Oh my gosh. It's like, you know, um, it would be like, talking basics while somebody else is, you know, already has their PhD. I mean, you know, I'm an undergrad and I, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, the way they see the game is, is unlike anything we can see the way they break the game down. Um, I'm not sure that they need broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they've done quite well. And I think they've spent a lot of time and a lot of their lives on the road. I'm, I'm not sure they're, they'd be ready to hop on board and, and, you know, make those weekly gallops a, a tournament to tournament as a broadcaster mm -hmm. but it would be absolutely brilliant you know it would be incredible you know it's it's like watching I think Darren Cahill on our crew is like that sometimes I, I watch tennis with Darren and I learn so so much but I, I sit there and I just listen to him and I I'm like, I did I didn't see that you know they just mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. see things that mm -hmm. us mere human tennis player <laughs> fans don't <laughs> Well, uh, getting back on the galloping to the ATP and WTA tours, um, they've canceled events through July. Uh, other sports are planning to return without fans, and it's really hard to imagine a Nick Kyrgios defending his City Open title without a crowd, um, and harder still to think about an empty U.S. Open. Um, yeah. Have you thought about that? Has ESPN talked about how you would cover a fanless event? Um, I think everything's on the table, frankly, for all sports. Um, I know the players would find it obviously strange to not have fans. As broadcasters, you would find it strange to not have fans. Um, I think about myself at the U.S. Open, and I'm always on that desk at night with tens of thousands behind us and coming into the event. Um, it would all be strange, but I think we all need to allow ourselves to just embrace the, you know, the times and you know sports are important to our country sports are vital to economics and however everybody can work together and manage to get sports back however it has to be whatever it takes that's really yeah. i think everyone's attitude at this point the new york times reported world team tennis will play july 12th through august 1st mm -hmm. at the greenbrier resort in west virginia with kennan 2017 us open champ sloan stevens and the bryan brothers among those playing with espn and cbs reportedly covering the matches how does world team tennis play and coverage differ from atp and wta tournaments and, and do you think it will help 
prep the players for the tour events to come? Well, I don't know that it's 100% confirmed yet, so let that be known. I'm not yeah. here to confirm um, a, a report. Um, but any match play will help these players, any match play. And I'm sure that's what players are looking to. How do I, how do I get myself, you know, match ready? And just this past weekend, you know, our, our government lifted the restrictions on athletes traveling internationally. So while the borders aren't open for everyone in recognizing the national interest in sports and the weight it carries in our economics, they have lifted restrictions for athletes. So I guess the question is then getting the athletes um, traveling safely and get them, getting them in the country and then, you know, participating. World Team Tennis is a little different. For one, it's everything's co-ed, you know, and, and that's not what you usually see on tours. Um, it's what Billie Jean King always envisioned tennis would be. Um, you know, she never was a fan of having two separate tours, the ATP and the WTA. She always thought it was stronger together. And you see that with World Team Tennis. So while some things are different, it's the idea of match play. And I'm sure if any player can can get some matches under his or her belt, they're going to do it. Yeah, as the great Sports Center anchor you are, you've segued me into the future of the sport and Billie Jean <laughs> King's vision for it. Because yeah. on April 22nd, Federer tweeted out the idea of the ATP and WTA tours combining. Both tour chiefs welcomed the suggestion. As you said, um, Billie Jean King said, one voice, women and men together has long been my vision. And I went back to a 2002 page two column that you wrote in, after an interview with King in which she called the co-ed format of World Team Tennis the future. Mm -hmm. You retweeted her May 1st interview with Andy Murray and Christiane Alampour about an ATP WTA merger, and you wrote, it's an idea that must become reality. The financial insecurities following the crisis will demand it. Mm -hmm. Why will the financial insecurities following the crisis demand that merger? Because I think, I think both tours um, you know, will be in financial trouble at the end of this. I think it, many, many sports will. I mean, you know, look at the U.S. team sports trying to negotiate with their players to make sure um, it works for everyone. And I think the tours are stronger together. I think it's a stronger negotiating position for for the tours. I think it's um, it puts the sport in, in a position of strength. Um, it's a very confusing sport sometimes to wrap your head around. You know, you have two different tours and you have four then independent grand slams of the tours so you know there's there's a lot of moving parts i don't envision the tours both traveling together all the time that's not at all what i meant but as far as a business unit i think it would be wise if they could work together but you know that's the great billie jean king i mean you know we keep saying it's the future of tennis she called for it in the early 1970s so okay let's you know let's look back 40 years to understand what she wanted to do um and call it our future but however it has to happen i i mean i think it it should I don't know if it will. I certainly have no say in the matter, but I think it would be smart. Looking back into your personal tennis background, uh, at Archbishop Ryan in Philadelphia, <laughs> you played basketball, soccer, and tennis, and you earned yeah. a tennis scholarship to Drexel University, where you now serve on the board of trustees. Um, and I'm wondering, um, and we're going to get back to Billie Jean King in a little bit, but can you describe what your game was back then? And have you gotten better by hanging with the ESPN tennis team? I've gotten smarter, uh, you know, smarter, but um, 
you know, father time, you know, stops for no one, including. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> um, I would say, well, first of all, I played back in the day when you could play multiple sports. You know, I, I see those days, sadly, changing a lot. Um, I see it with my own children and many others. Um, people specialize now. And when I was playing, um, especially if you were an athletic young woman, there was just opportunities every season for you to play a sport. And, and um, again, thanks to Billie Jean, I was truly the first Title IX generation. So I had a lot of opportunity. And it wasn't until late in high school that, you know, it became quite obvious. Um, well, actually, I had an injury playing soccer that took me off the field for a solid season and a half. But, um, it, and it just became obvious, you know, tennis might be the sport that I was, um, you know, achieving, you know, doing the best with and, um, and then had an opportunity to go to Drexel and play, which was fantastic. Um, but, you know, uh, what was my game? I don't know. I mean, I was a typical <laughs> 80s player. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so I would hit a lot of baseline and um, topspin and had my Prince Pro racket, you know, <laughs> so that's that's kind of my generation. Um, I don't play a ton right now, although I played like two nights ago. We'll go out and play as a family, you know, which is in these times, it's really nice to have a family of four when you're only allowed to play with family members. Mm -hmm. um, so we, I can still play and, and you know, like still hit and, and, but I haven't gotten involved in competitions or anything like that as I've gotten older. And I just certainly understand the game more. And, um, you know, I guess having a tennis background, um, it does help me converse with the analysts. And I think that was obvious from the beginning. I was, um, you know, I was a sportscaster who came along and, and they recognized that I could talk their language and I understood. And I, um, I know how to lead them in conversation and questions having played the game. Um, and then I've learned so much strategy from them. I wish I had it back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> now you've passed that on to your eldest son who um, attended colleague Chris Everts yeah. Academy. Uh, yeah. Should we look for him on the college court? No, mm -mm. Okay. not at all because he doesn't play anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did not. This is going to get back to Billie Jean again. He did play and he loved it. And, you know, like I said, we played two nights ago and I'm still like, well, all those lessons were worth it. He still really cracks it, you know, <laughs> he can really hit and it's fun. Both of the boys are the same way. But when my oldest was in seventh grade, um, he was introduced to a friend of his said, you want to go to the rowing club with me? I'm doing a, a rowing clinic for crew. Um, and we live on the water here in Connecticut. So there's a rowing club in town. And he went and really fell in love with crew. So he's been competing Unfortunately, they lost their spring season, you know, this year, but last year he went to nationals for the first time. And hopefully before he gets out of high school next year, they'll have, you know, um, the spring season again. So he's been competing a lot um, as a rower and it's, uh, he loves it. And, you know, one thing Stu that he, that he came home and, and said he really, he really liked was the camaraderie he suddenly found in the boat, you know, with the boys in the boat. And that's something he didn't have in tennis. It's so singular. Um, I wish USTA team tennis was as popular as playing tournaments and getting rankings and your points. Um, because I think, you know, the camaraderie that kids find on a team sport is missing in tennis as juniors. Um, so anyway, I was in Australia shortly after he began rowing and I was talking to Billie Jean and she asked about 
about him and his game. And I said, yeah, he's still, he's still, uh, you know, can play and, and will hit, but he's not competing. He's, he's going with rowing. And she said, it's the camaraderie, isn't it? And I said, it is. Mm -hmm. I said, he mm -hmm. just, he liked having that group of friends with him competing and traveling together and going to practices together. And, um, but anyway, but he's, he, he's doing quite well and he enjoys it. And that's the point, right? Keep them yeah. ha healthy and active. <laughs> and that's a great point. Um, the behind the racket podcast that uh, Noah Rubin has started. And um, isn't that terrific? It, it's really yeah, good. It, it speaks to that isolation that these players have. And um, it's great that he's created that. And, you know, you having been a, a tennis athlete, again, I'm more on a team basis. Team. Yes. By yeah. the time I really took to tennis, I was almost in college, right? So, but even growing up, one of my favorite experiences, I played National Junior Tennis League. So the NJTL, which is played in the city parks. And mm -hmm. I always played tennis, you know, like say with my parents or my brothers. And when we moved to Philadelphia, I was in uh, fifth grade going into sixth grade. And suddenly I realized this is pretty cool. Like they play tennis as a team sport here. And I got more interested in playing tennis because it, again, to me, it was a bit of a team sport. And then obviously later in the high school years, you know, not as much, but then in college, it's, it's a great, great time as a team sport. That transition from high school to college, uh, getting back to that, you were a humanities and communications major at Drexel and writing has always been important to you. And to me, I think you do it at a higher level than you wrote in a page two column where you said, I spend most of my days writing for a TV news audience. It's been said that TV news is written on a third grade level. Um, but in the other page two piece I mentioned earlier, Billie Jean King asked if you earned scholarship money at Drexel and you replied, yes, I wasn't very good, but the education sent me on this path. So when and why did you decide to become a sports broadcaster? Well, I always loved loved sports and knew a ton about sports. Um, I grew up with three brothers. So, you know, um, that was my influence. But I just really loved all sports. I, I liked following, uh, reading about them. Uh, the statistics and understanding them came very quickly to me at a young age. But, you know, frankly, it was funny. I didn't realize that was unusual. I thought everybody, <laughs> you know, I thought everybody knew and understood sports like that. Um, but I didn't really know that it could be a career for me. Again, I, I didn't see anybody doing it, right? I mean, I remember Phyllis George and Jane Kennedy, but I mean, they were Miss Americas. I, you know, I was not Miss America. I was just a a neighborhood kid who liked sports. So I went to Drexel, as we've talked about, and um, wasn't a hundred percent sure what I was going to do, but I was on campus, which is in the middle of Philadelphia. And I decided to check out interning for a local TV station. I had the free time. It was a subway or two stop away from campus. Um, and I went and I, I started interning in the newsroom. They needed help in the sports department one day and asked you know, who, who knew some of the Eagles players? Like, you know, could the intern go and kind of hold the mic? So I was probably about 19. And, and I was like, I know the Eagles. Like, who doesn't know the, how are you a Philadelphian? But anyway, so I said, I do. And I went and um, then the sportscaster, Howard Eskin, who remains, um, you know, a great friend of mine, 
uh, he, he sought me out and he said, you did a great job. Why aren't you working in the sports department? I, I didn't even know such an opportunity was there. I said, well, I'd be happy to work in sports. So I just started interning and I just really loved it. And um, I just, I was the intern that never left until eventually someone in that town hired me, <laughs> but as a producer for a couple of years and then went off and got some on-air experience. Um, but, you know, that's what I, I tell my kids and I tell a lot of young people, you know, find your passion and then make it work, you know, as, as you've done too, right? Find your, so our passion is sports. And then you say, all right, how do, how do I make this work for me? <laughs> how can I, how can I make a living out of doing something that I really, really love? And I've been fortunate. And tennis is your passion, but the Olympics has played a big role in your life. Uh, I mentioned debuting the Midday Sports Center during the 2008 Games. And I'm wondering, how did you meet Nancy Hogshead, a three-time gold medalist in swimming at the 84 LA Olympics? Yeah. And how did she introduce you to your husband? Yeah, well, they went to law school together. So I found Nancy quite interesting. Um, she's another you know, brilliant mind and was a great proponent for Title IX. And of course, I, I knew of her from the 84 Olympics. I mean, I knew her story from um, the 80 Olympics that she didn't get to participate in um, and then came back and, and won so much at the 84 games. Um, so when I got to Washington, D.C. Um, in 94, that same year, she started Georgetown Law. Um, she was older. She was already in her 30s, but realized um, without her law degree and a stronger understanding of the law and Title IX, she was the celebrity, you know, fighting for women's rights in sports. And she wanted to be on an equal footing. And I just found her story incredibly inspiring. So I, you know, contacted her and asked to do a story on her. And she, she agreed and then, um, you know, asked me, I was about 20, at the time, 24, 25. She's like, do you have friends in town? Are you finding a healthy balance? You know, she was really looking out for me like a mentor. And, you know, I explained, obviously, most people I worked with were a bit older than I am. I was at the time. She said, you're the same age as all my law school friends. Like, you know, socialize with us, do things with us. So sure enough, she followed up on that and contacted me and said, we're going bowling and you have to come. So I went bowling with Georgetown Law students and my husband happened to be bowling. And so we met. <laughs> so I owe a lot to Nancy and, and we've remained friends. Um, and then the other time the Olympics actually played a big role. You know, my first show at SportsCenter was 1996 when the Olympic Park bomb went off. And that was the first time I ever anchored SportsCenter. So I remember sitting down scared to death and I thought, well, this could be the shortest career on Sports Center history, <laughs> but this is just, um, I think because the event was so big, it, it really helped me um, focus and keep my wits about me. Um, so yeah, I guess the Olympics have sort of, for never having covered them um, in person, which is something I've always wanted to do, but I've never been, you know, at the network that has the rights. Um, yeah, I guess they have sort of dotted, dotted my career, haven't they, in personal life? <laughs> Yeah, and you came into ESPN at a time where they were building the ESPN News newsroom, and it was unsettling for somebody who'd been there. I'd been there a little bit earlier. Um, yeah. So I think it was a good time for you to get there uh, and to be working through that because it was kind of a triage situation. And for that to be your first experience <laughs> mapped out and, and built, you know, you've got a 20 year career hosting Sports Center. And 
uh, coming up on your um, quarter of a century anniversary yeah. next year. That's crazy. How up is that? Yeah. I mean, wow, we met more than 20 years ago, Stu, at the X Games. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Winter X up on Snow Summit and uh, yeah. the X Games in San Diego. Back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, back to the late 90s, you were a sideline reporter on the Women's World Cup for the 99ers. <laughs> was there a moment that stands out from the U.S. team championship run? And did you have a sense of the impact and the history being made? Well, you know, soccer was always my favorite sport. And I mentioned I was injured in high school. I actually broke my leg in the middle of my high school sort of career. Um, and that was the injury I suffered that sent me sort of on the way to tennis because I had to avoid contact. Um, I just always loved the game and I loved the sport and I was actually doing X games, but I had thrown my hat in the ring for, is there anything I could do 99 for the women's world cup? Um, so they said, which one do you want? You know, which one do you want to do summer X or, or the women's world cup? And I said, I, I want to do women's world cup, like whatever it, whatever it is, you know? So I was the sideline reporter and you know, I, I hoped, I went into it hoping it would have a big impact because I loved the sport and I, I loved women's sports. I also saw the women's team games during the Atlanta Olympics in 96. That was the first time it really became obvious what Title IX had done for American women. We dominated every single team sport, every single one. And so it became obvious to me, like, this could be something big. And I, I wanted to be a part of it. And that first game, when we were at the Meadowlands, and it was sold out, it was absolutely packed. Um, I think we just realized this is going to be huge. And then I remember rolling into Chicago, and it, it was just insane. And by the time we got to championship weekend, and they were practicing at a small college, the Pomona Pomona, Pitzer, Claremont, Cluster Colleges, and, you know, athletes like Julie Fowdy and Mia Hamm and, you know, Brandy Chastain and Christine Lilly and um, Brianna Scurry, you know, all the 99ers that in the beginning you could walk up and get your sound bites, you know, it, it, it was just a scrum of reporters from all over the world and from Entertainment Tonight and, you know, became, it, it was huge, it was huge, and, um, yeah, but I think we knew it from the very start, you know, the crowd. And the other thing that was very interesting with the 99ers is you saw the younger generation was growing up differently because of the young men coming to cheer for the women. Um, you know, it was, they weren't cheering like, like they were just cheering for great players and great play. And you saw that they were growing up differently and, and were really learning to appreciate great athletes and let's take the gender out of this and we're cheering for our country and our team of athletes who are superior and it was it was a thrill and uh, a netflix movie to come um and speaking yeah. of netflix i'm wondering if you've watched john McEnroe on mindy kaling's never have i, I ever did. <laughs> i did you know i i spoke to john last week and i said john only you in the middle of a pandemic would figure out how to diversify yourself, work with one of the hottest talents and comedians and writers in Hollywood and introduce yourself to a whole new generation. <laughs> like only John could do that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it's so clever. I just, I love it. I think it's, 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 it's really fun. And, and it was of course popular with my, my younger son. So, <laughs> you know, we watched it and all his friends watched it and, 
And um, he's the one who told me, he's like, mom, you know, John McEnroe, like we're watching Netflix party about his show. I'm like, John's show? <laughs> and then I saw it, but it's very, very well done. Yeah. Uh, in this pandemic, any other recommendations for us to watch? Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like I'm a little late to the party, but Schitt's Creek is mm -hmm. just the best. Mm -hmm. Moira Rose. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I thought about that. I'm like, you know, if I've ever done the spelling bee again, I might try to do it like Moira Rose would do it. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but I, I loved, um, I loved Schitt's Creek and, um, I also watched Unorthodox, which I found really, really interesting, but of course, much heavier than Schitt's Creek or Never Have I Ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. So with the new contract at the start of the year, you'll be covering Grand Slams for the foreseeable future. Um, looks like the Aussie Open through next year, the World Midland contract through 2023, US Open through 2025. Do you have any other upcoming projects in the near term we should watch out for? No. Mm -mm, just tennis. I mean, yeah. And fingers crossed that that happens with the US Open and then maybe Paris, you know, like I keep saying in any way, shape or form, we can bring you some tennis. We're going to try to do it. Yeah. And you mentioned the Olympics earlier. Are there any items you'd like to check off your broadcasting bucket list? <laughs> no, no. Anything, anything beyond what I've been able to do is pure greed. But um, <laughs> I would... <laughs> I would definitely, you know, the Olympics just to see the spectacle that they are. And, and, you know, I'm, I really hope Tokyo gets to hold their games next summer. That would just be incredibly sad and, and uh, unfair if they don't, but um, no, I can't, I can't, th there's always, you know, one-offs that I say, Oh, I'd be interested in doing that. Maybe the masters let's add the uh, masters. The I mean, masters. it's since you're asking like, yeah, yeah. Who can I get, I'll throw that one into. Yeah. But if I had told you, watching breakfast at Wimbledon that you'd be a colleague of Chris Everett or John McEnroe. I mean, oh you, you probably would say you cannot be serious to me. <laughs> Stu, I still, I mean, sometimes when I, you know, I'm sitting up there on Henman Hill and honestly, when I say welcome to breakfast at Wimbledon, I still pause and think, did that just come out of my mouth? Like, am I, you know, and I take it so seriously, but with a sense of fun and, and all that it should be. Because, first of all, what makes Wimbledon to me so iconic, it still looks exactly the way it looked when we were kids, right? And, and there's something about that. And I think, you know what, there's kids out there who are watching me say, welcome to breakfast at Wimbledon. And I want them to have the impact it had on me, you know? Um, so, so I, I mean, it's just such an honor. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, that's crazy. awesome. Well, Chris McKendry, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's great to catch up. It is great. It's great to see you. And, and thanks. Thanks for, you know, sharing your time with me. I mean, it's you. You've been a great friend and colleagues, Stu. Thank well, you. No, thank you. And uh, make sure you follow Chris if you don't already on Twitter at Chris McKendry, all one word. And thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes. We're also available on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Find us at Believe, that's B-L-E-A-V dot com, and at Believe Podcast on social. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.